um, a post that somebody I know not real well had posted this last week, uh, and they had a picture of a marquee at a church, and it was talking about Jesus, um, relationship, not a religion. And uh, sadly, it was a real sad post, it was uh, this gentleman said, you know, it's not the kind of relationship that I have with other people, and a lot of the components to a relationship just weren't there. And so, you know, like hanging out and talking to each other, and he goes, all the other relationships I have, but that wasn't the relationship I had with Jesus, therefore I walked away from the faith. That was his point. And I, I do think sometimes, you know, our effort to make the Christian faith so intimate uh, has an expense to it when we go, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. And I, I understand the sentiment behind that. I understand there's something good about the fact that this is not some cold external thing we're doing. You know, there's, there's something that should appeal to our very heart, and the relationship is tighter than any relationship we have. Yet at the same time, what we're going to see here is that there is an interaction with Mary and Joseph and the baby that is, that is very relational. There was a place they went, and they did things similar to what we're doing right now. We're, we're, we have a relationship, and we are right now in communion. We're in communion with God, and with who else? With one another. So there, you know, this is the way God interacts with us. So I, want, I just want that in the kind of the back of our mind as we take a look at this portion of Scripture that I think a lot of us might read and go, oh, that's an Old Testament ritual. Let's move on to the meatier portions of the text. But uh, I don't think the Holy Spirit placed this in the Gospel of Luke by mistake. Here's something easy to read until we get into the bigger, you know, weightier topics or what have you. So let's take a look here at Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 24. Hear now the word of God. And when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child... His name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it almost seems like this portion of the scriptures is, is itself entirely parenthetical, but we know that it's not. We know that, that you have placed this here for us to, to meditate upon, to learn from, to be, to be sanctified by, and I do pray that as we examine what these words mean, that even as we... Um, recited today in the, the, the catechism that what we are to believe about you and, and what claims you have in terms of our behavior in our, our life. We do pray that we wouldn't view these things in a stoic way, but that we would feel the inertia of your power as we examine that which you'd have us examine and be, and be changed by. So we do pray this will take place in Jesus' name. Amen. I think we tend to underestimate the effect our culture has on us when we read our Bibles. It's one of the reasons I enjoy reading uh, commentaries that are uh, 100 years old or 500 years old or even going back 1,800 years and going, okay, how do, they, how do they see this passage? Because sometimes the way they're addressing the passage is way different than the way it's being addressed by modern-day exegetes. And it's not just in our Bibles, I think, that we're affected. I think any disposition that we have regarding the the ethos, right, the the ethical condition of our era versus other eras, we all tend to engage in, maybe not all of us, but most of us, in what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery, this idea that that what happened in other generations, the, the critical the critical nature we have of other generations, we would not have done those things. We would not have done what they did. And we, and we have that claim by virtue of our own nature, that somehow 
Our individual superiority would not allow us to do what other people did in other eras and in other lands. I recall going through a period of time when I was just tortured by, I mean, just psychologically tortured by how, and there was actually a book called Ordinary People, how very ordinary people in Germany in the 30s somehow were convinced to engage in the Holocaust. We're talking about accountants and teachers and, and people who would just be normal people somehow, psychologically, they were brought to a place where they were doing the unthinkable. And I remember to myself thinking, I would never have done that. I'm, I'm superior to those people. I think the same could be for, said for a lot of things. You know, our disposition toward slavery, polygamy, child labor, you name it, things that we're going, how could they have ever done that? I never would have done that. We sit in our kind of cultural crow's nest, at least we think it is, and we snub the darkness of previous generations. You know, what, you know where this takes me? It makes me wonder how the next generation, maybe 100 years from now, 200 years from now, how they will look at us. How could they have done that? How could they have engaged in a Abortion. How could they have, have so obviously a child? How could they have engaged, you know, in, in allowing poverty to take place when there were these big rich buildings and people driving $60,000 cars by other people who don't have anything? How could they have done that? How could they have allowed the sexual dysphoria that's taking place? How was that okay to that whole generation? Why did they keep trying to engage in communism when it obviously failed over and over and over again? They just would repackage it. Were these people fools? I mean, it goes on and on, right? I mean, I wonder, how are they going to look at us? How are they going to look at me? Now, I'm opening with this because throughout the ages, the church, Christians, have seemingly engaged in two pretty serious Errors. One error, one of the errors, and I don't think it's just the one that we kind of find ourselves in right now so much, is concluding that by virtue of our inclusion in a Christian community, in, a, in say a church, we have met our, or really God's, religious demands or requirements. I'm at church. That's all that God really needs out of me. Now, we, we and I, I think in the room, we're kind of going, well, who thinks that? Well, I'm going to tell you, that might be the majority report throughout, at least at this point, church history. As if being a baptized member in good standing of a Christian church, as important and as valuable as that is, and we'll see that even in this text, is all that is necessary for God to be satisfied, you know, with our resume, with our curriculum vitae, you know, this idea that God's like, oh, I see what you've done. We're good because you're a member. You're sitting in that seat. You're in the rolls. You're on the computer of the church. Now, this hit, this whole thing hit a fever pitch in the Roman Catholic Church during the Middle Ages, you know, between 400 and, say, 1400. I had a seminary professor who was just a well-known and very highly esteemed a teacher of church history. And I, I really enjoyed his class, and he really understood the era. And I recall being kind of shocked when he brought to our attention that very few people during this medieval period, the Middle Ages, very few people feared going to hell. They weren't afraid of going to hell. Because being a member of the Church of Rome alleviated that concern. Because everybody was part of the Roman Catholic Church. If I'm part of the Roman Catholic Church, I'm not going to hell. You know what their big concern was? Their big concern wasn't going to hell. Their big concern was, how long am I going to be in purgatory? That was the major concern. And how do I get out quicker? And, in, and if, you, if you read the 95 Theses by Martin Luther, you realize that was the issue. The issue was your relatives can get you out quicker if they did what? If they paid. 
I mean, that was, that was the real kind of at least initial issue that led to the Protestant Reformation. How do you get out of purgatory? Indulgences, you pay money. I mean, that's what incensed Martin Luther and led to the, the Protestant church. Anyway, so you've got, that, you've got that issue, like, hey, I'm part of a church, I'm good. Now, what's the other? The one that really, I think, is the issue we deal with. The counter-era is an era that, well, Herbert Hoover, a president, you know, back in the early parts of the 20th century, actually coined the phrase, rugged individualism. Or sometimes they add Western, rugged Western individualism on the frontier of America, right? You were on your own. The government wasn't there to help you. There was a dearth of churches. You're out there, a little house on the prairie, but there ain't no church, and there's no government, and there are no handouts. You were an individual. You were isolated. You need to take care of yourself. You had to be tough. People were on their own, and only the fittest survived. Now, the bizarre twist in our current era is how dependent we've become on the government while at the same time living in the fantasy that we're still individually self-reliant. It's like a funny little twist. Anyway, those are the two problems. And with those two problems come this idea of participating in religious activities. You know, there was a time when you're like going, well, you know, we need, we need the priest, we need the incense, we need the Lord's Supper, we need, you know, all the, you know, the baptisms and all that stuff. We don't really need that anymore. I'm in a small group. I don't need that anymore. I've asked Jesus into my heart. All that stuff's religion. Get out, get, I remember a, a Somebody I went to seminary with, he became a pretty well-known radio host. He's now gone to be with the Lord. And I was at an event, he was the top speaker, and he's like telling everybody in the room what they don't need if we're in order to be saved. You know, you don't need to be righteous, you don't need to be wise, you don't need to be this, you don't need church. All you need to do is ask Jesus into your heart. And I remember writing him a letter going, like, I appreciate what you're saying here, because I understand your goal, but when you start saying, I don't need church, you're sending a message that has ultimate long-term destruction written all over it. It's like telling people, you know, you can have babies. You don't need a family. You you don't need a hospital. You don't need a midwife. You don't need a husband. You can have a baby. Well, that may be true. But is that really the healthiest prescription? Is to just kind of be there on your own? I don't think, I think we'll find that's simply not the case. So which is the correct approach? Are we to be individuals? Do we approach this? Are we in this room, 300 individuals, isolated even, you know, on my own, like in the West, out on the frontier? Or are we called to seek out a community? Does the Bible have anything to say about this? I think it does. And I think the answer, like so many answers, is both. Let me explain what I mean by that. No individual in this room will find salvation. No individual in this room will find true peace with God based upon the faith of somebody else. That's not going to happen. You know, the famous words by Job, right? Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. The nakedness that he's speaking of is the acme of the individual. He had just lost his family, right? He had just lost his family. He's like, I I came in here alone. I'm leaving alone. There's, There's an individual nature of our relationship with God that can't be dismissed. You're not going to be saved because of other people's faith. At the same time, we seldom see God interacting with humanity as individuals. That's not something we generally see, if anything, that's an exception rather than the rule. Remember the one thing that wasn't good when God created Adam before the fall? What was the one thing that was not good? Yeah, it was not good for him to be alone. 
So right away, we're developing, God's developing a, a community. And then you've got the situation with Noah, right? Because it's always Noah, Noah, Noah. But when God saved Noah, did he just save Noah? No. Saved who? His whole family. And Peter says that that was a type of baptism. So you've got this corporate baptism taking place right away. The family. When God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, 3, the promise was stated this way, that in you, all the individuals in the world shall be blessed. Well, that's not the way it's said. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. You know, when the author of Hebrews wrote of the old covenant, uh, uh, you know, practice of various washings, we see that in Hebrews chapter 9, various washings. You know what the... You know what the, uh, the Greek word there is for washings? We'll see if it sounds familiar. Baptismois. What does that sound like to you? Yeah, yes. So you got these various baptisms. It'd be its own, I think, interesting study to go, well, wait a minute, there's various baptisms, but Paul writes that there's one baptism. How do we deal with that? Like our, you know, our atheist friends will be like, yet another contradiction in the Bible. It's not a contradiction. He goes on to explain, the writer of Hebrews, he goes on to explain the application of these baptisms. And what we see here is a corporate baptism. Hebrews 9, 19, for when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and who? All the people, okay, we're all going to be baptized. Everybody's going to be baptized together in this event. Parenthetically, because this came up last week in Q&A. In that baptism in the Old Testament, the only thing actually dipped was the hyssop. It was a plant. They didn't dip the people in it. They dipped the hyssop in it, and then they sprinkled it on the people. I'll talk about the mode that is acceptable before God in terms of a baptism. But the point here is what we see, and the point I'm trying to make, because we're going to get to, is that, that the, in the passage that we're reading, studying, there's a whole family. Right? There's a whole family going somewhere. So what we see here is a, is a corporate baptism. Okay, so that's all Old Testament stuff, Old Covenant. You know, Greg Bonson said, well, a lot of people view that as the Word of God emeritus. We've got to get out of that Old Testament, get out of that Old Covenant, and move into the New Testament, the New Covenant, and just kind of let that thing kind of slowly die out. But we as a church, when we ask about membership vows, we ask if you believe the Word of God consisting of what? The Old and New Testament. So we've got to read the whole Bible and see how it is, uh, you know, and what we do, like we learned last week, we ponder it, right? We look at how does it all work together. So we get in the New Testament, has this whole family thing disappeared? It's no longer, we don't, we're no longer engaging with God corporately. Now it's all about individuals. Is that what happens? Well, I don't think it is. And when Jesus, who alone is our Savior, by the way, he is the unique one, you know, who, when we talk about the solas, you know, we're talking about solus Christus, that Christ alone. He didn't get on the cross with anybody else. So he's the unique one who's an individual. But even Christ, when he began his earthly ministry, did what? He surrounded himself with apostles. Right? And not only, he saw, not only the apostles, he also gathered 70 others. Right? So you've got the apostles, then you've got 70. We see that later in Luke, Luke chapter 10. So he's got the 70, right? They're going to be evangelists. They're going to go out and share the gospel. Who are they sharing the gospel with? Well, Luke 10.5, but whatever house you enter, first say peace to this house. Is it the walls, the door, the windows, the dishwasher? What's the house? Right? It's a household. It's the people. Remember Zacchaeus who repented? came to faith, Jesus' response when Zacchaeus came to faith 
again in Luke 19.9, said that salvation has come to this house. This theme of family runs through the New Testament consistently. We see it consistently, and I'd argue probably more than we see individuality. And again, keep in mind, you're not going to get saved by the faith even of your family members, but nonetheless, we're talking about the way that God interacts, the means by which he reaches out to us. This idea of family runs consistently through the New Testament when, when God opened Lydia's eyes, right? When he entered into her heart, changed her heart, opened her eyes, she was baptized and her household. By the way, you know, in these household baptisms, there's only one of the household baptisms where we can even kind of make some type of assumption that the people in the household were themselves, faith, had faith. But as, again, as Bonson used to say, they were baptized qua being part of the household. They and their household were baptized. When the Philippian jailer came to faith, and this is the one, the word was spoken to his family, to his household. By the way, it might have been more than just his family. Households in those days consisted of more than just family members. And we read in Acts 16.33, he was baptized at once, he and all his family. When Paul writes about one of the few baptisms he administered, it was the household of Stephanus, 1 Corinthians 1.16. And later in that same book, in 1 Corinthians, he's going to explain that one believing parent, a believing wife, a believing husband, I mean, these are, this is in the New Testament, right? this is in the Old Testament, not that it should make that big of a difference, but one believing spouse sanctifies the other. Sanctifies. You know what that word means? It means this idea, the word that we have for saint, that comes from the same root word, this idea of holy. One believing parent somehow makes the other one holy. And not only that, if there's one, Paul writes that the children... The children of one believing parent is clean and holy. Now, let me just state right here just to make sure things are clear. The fact that you're clean and holy, according to the Bible, doesn't necessarily mean that you're regenerate or that you're actually saved. Right? He doesn't say, if you have one believing parent, the children are going straight to heaven. It's not what it says. But at the same time, you've got to deal with the idea that somehow God has determined that within the household where there's one believing parent, somehow that household is different than other households. The idea of holy and clean are very common words in the Old Testament to designate, at least in a ceremonial, observable sense, that which God requires to function in his community. God's going, look at it. In our interactions, these are the things that have to take place. And when these things take place, the people who are part of that are clean and holy. It's a, it's a way, you might say it this way, that God, through a drama, through a dramatic act, communicates with us. Now, now in the New Covenant, it's very simple, right? Baptism and the Lord's Supper. But in the text we're looking at, and you're wondering, okay, it's a pretty long introduction. We haven't got to the text yet. We'll get through the text kind of more rapidly. But I, I look at that text going, most of us are going to be like, why are we even talking about circumcision and purification? I'm like, we need to understand that God has determined that in a community certain things need to take place, and those things that take place mean something. And it's the means by which I'm communicating to you, and you need to listen. It's, and by the way, it's word and sacrament. It's not just the drama. There's a narrator explaining what the drama actually means. What we have in this passage are you know, ceremonial, some might call sacramental activities taking place. And I have to say, we live, as like I said, the billboard, you know, it's a relationship, not a religion. We live in a Culture that tends to downplay the importance of these things. We're just like, yeah, you guys, you have your religion. I have a relationship. Baptism, I have found, baptism and the Lord's Supper have become almost expendable. 
provided, like I said earlier, you're in a small group, or provided you ask Jesus into your heart. Those are the new sacraments. Those are the things that really matter. Look at, I think, like I said, I don't want to be unclear. We need to individually believe, and I think that we should be part of a, of a group of people and, you know, that we're feeling a certain level of confidence with and interaction with and confessing our sins one to another and what have you. I think that's all, that's all important. But God seems to place a pretty big emphasis on certain things that he wants us to do. I think it's a significant error to conclude that these things are not important to God. I think that's a cultural error that we're making. These are ways that God sends a message. You know what the, and you know what the term is the term that's used to describe what these things are? Because it's kind of a big deal. They are a means of grace. The Lord's Supper is a means of grace. Baptism is a means of grace. It's a means by which God extends his grace to us. And to neglect them is to be negligent. I do find it sometimes a bit ironic that my non-churched friends who have babies want me to baptize their babies more than my Christian friends want me to baptize their babies. So we have friends in the community, and it's like they have a baby. You know, they get married. You know, they're the single person in our culture, right? And no matter how old they are, they're not grown up until they get married, and then they're kind of grown up. But they go from kind of grown up to actually grown up when they have a baby. And then they have this baby, and all of a sudden they realize they're responsible for the soul of another person. And I get a phone call going, hey, can you baptize you know, our baby? And I'm like, I'd love to baptize your baby. I didn't even know that you were a Christian. And they're like, well. <laughs> and when eight days were completed for the circumcision of the child, his name was called Jesus the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. When God made, and I referenced it just a minute ago, a covenantal promise to Abraham that he would be the father of many nations, that when he made that promise, that God, when God said, I'm going to save the world, and it's going to be through your seed, he commanded that a sign be attached to that covenant. I'm making a promise. It's going to be through your seed, and there's a sign that I want you to engage in, and that sign is circumcision. Genesis 17.10 is where we kind of see it launched. Circumcision. What is that? What does that mean? What does it refer to? I mean, that could be the subject of, of many sermons. But among other things, the sign assumes this. They are, that we are born sinful. The sign assumes that we are born with uncircumcised hearts. Now, this idea of, of an uncircumcised heart means you have a hard heart toward God. It, it means that we are conceived in sin. We're conceived in iniquity. We come forth from the womb speaking lies. That's what the Bible teaches. And we need help. We need cleansing. Now, this particular ritual or sacrament or whatever you want to call it, along with the one we're going to see in just a second, it was important enough for Joseph and Mary to go you know, from Bethlehem to Jerusalem, which would be a doable but not easy journey. You know, I don't know, it was five or six miles, probably more in terms of the route, and make sure they went to where they had to go to get it done. Right? So again, it wasn't something that they were going, well, let's just stay here and do it. So they make a journey Let's get the family together and let's go to participate in this event with a little baby. Now, I'm going to say right here, and I'm not spending a lot of time here because I think it's probably more generally understood that the main point in this verse, likely, is the name of Jesus. The other part is, you know, like what they call the apodosis, or the most important part here is like going, they went there and they gave him the name Jesus, which the angel told them, you know, from God to the angel to them, name your baby Jesus. What does that mean? Jesus means, it is a transliteration from Joshua of the Old Testament. It means Jehovah is salvation. He's come here to save us. That's what it meant then, 
And that's what it means now. And let me just say, even though right now we're getting into some other stuff, if we lose that, we lose everything. It's the whole point here is that in all of this, we're coming to realize that God sent his son to save our souls. So let's not lose that as we take it. Matter of fact, I would argue that in the whole Bible that we're reading from Genesis to Revelation, that's got to be somehow, that light's got to be shining on the scriptures one way or another. But if circumcision, I don't know if you do this when you read your Bibles. I kind of hope you do. If circumcision was to be given due to our sinful hearts, why did Jesus need it? That God, let me back up a little bit, that God would require that this sign be put on an infant should testify to us very clearly that man is born in a desperately sinful condition. You didn't get circumcised in the Old Testament when you did enough bad stuff. Boy, you really need it. Hey, anybody want to be circumcised? Talk to my buddy. He really needs it. No, at you know, right at the very beginning of your life, as I said earlier, David confessed that he was a sinner at conception. Circumcision and its new covenant counterpart, baptism, because there's got to be some, something in the new covenant, right? What, what, you know, in the Old Testament, the big meal, the big celebration was what? Passover, right? In the New Testament, who's our Passover? Yeah, Jesus, you know, Paul says it explicitly, Christ is our Passover. The other big sacrament in the Old Testament is circumcision. It's a sign, it's not the thing. It's not a, circumcision is not a circumcised heart. It's a sign of a circumcised heart or your need for that. Well, what is it in the New Testament? Has God left us with no antitype to circumcision? I would say he hasn't left us without. He's like, in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, you had Passover in the New Testament, you have the Lord's Supper in the Old Testament, you have circumcision in the New Testament, you have baptism. So when I talk about that, what you'll find if you study it is they're both pretty much signs of the same things with some modifications that were unique to the Old, to the old Covenant. Having said that, circumcision and its New Covenant counterpart, baptism, I think give the clearest picture of both man's sinful condition, since you, since you need it as an infant, Right? Not when you get bad enough. You need it as an infant. And it gives us the only thing we can do about it. Which is be cleansed by Christ. And it's not even us doing something about it. It's the fact that God has done something about it. All right? So that's why I think there's something really beautiful about baptizing an infant. Because in terms of the message, it gives the message loud and clear. That, you know what, as a race, we have a problem. And as a race, there is a solution. The purification that comes, as it were, through the waters of baptism, that's pointing to the purification that comes to us through the blood of Christ. Boy, what a message. What a clear message that is and should be to us. But again, having said all that, why would Jesus need to be baptized or circumcised or baptized for that matter, right? He did both. I mean, does not the Bible say that it's Jesus who actually circumcises our hearts in Colossians 2, 11 and 12? Didn't even John the Baptist kind of go, wait a minute, I shouldn't baptize you, you should baptize me, right? I mean, this doesn't seem right. Well, we learn a couple of things when we begin to go, why was Jesus circumcised? Why was Jesus baptized if... These are signs of being purified from sin. One thing we learn is that circumcision and baptism, both signs of our need to be purified, are more than that. It's not merely that. It's that. It certainly includes that, and I'm going to end with that thought. It marked out, those signs marked out that you were part of a community that you're one of these people, that you're, you, are, you, are part of a, you are a baptized person that's part of a baptized community. 
God's covenant community and marked out who God's people were. Historically, whether you know this or not, baptism was a sign that was put on you when you became a member of a church. You didn't do it on your own somewhere. It kind of baptized you into a community. You see, in being circumcised, Jesus was counted as part of that community. He's going, no, I'm one of them. He's not ashamed, what does it say in Hebrews? To call us what? Brethren. He didn't go, look at, you all need it, I don't, I'm not going to be part of that. He came right into it. Being born under the law, he had to do everything that the law required. He had to fulfill all righteousness, and one of the things God required was to be circumcised, and he also requires baptism. He's like, this is something I'm telling you to do. And I'm not telling you to do it to be mean or austere. I'm, doing, I'm telling you to do this. It's like, you know, putting a ring on when you get married. You know, it's kind of like, well, this is something that will remind you. I mean, I, I mean, it's interesting how marriage is such a comparison because you take the vows once, but you wear the ring all your life. You're baptized once, you take the Lord's Supper all your life. You, I mean, when I do weddings and I talk about the ring, I'm always feeling my own ring, thinking about my own convictions. And this is what God would have us do. He's got one that just happens once. Once, once for all saved. You're, we're, but I want you to be reminded over and over and over again. That's why we have this table right here. But let me just finish with this thought in terms of why Jesus would be circumcised. Because I think there is merit to the argument that sees, since Jesus would be made a curse for us on the cross. Jesus would be made a curse. He would become sin that he would take upon himself our uncleanness with respect to our guilt, though he was without spot or blemish. And by the way, those of you who have the notes, there's a huge typo, like a huge typo in these notes, just so you know, because I, I, I noticed this morning that he was, I wrote, he was with spot. Okay, that's one of those typos that turns you in a, into a heretic. Right? So you've got to switch that around in the notes. But he took upon himself our uncleanness with respect to our guilt, even though he was sinless, that he would allow himself to be reckoned as unclean, therefore be circumcised and baptized, even though he himself was sinless. Friends, we look at this and come to realize we serve no distant Savior. He was baptized, if you will, into the sewage of human sin that we might be reckoned purified by the living waters. And that's the picture given. Now, when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as was written in the law of the Lord. Every male who opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. So now Luke records the purification of Mary. Not to get into the whole Roman Catholic view of Mary, but unlike Jesus, Mary did need this. But it does seem, you know, when I, I had to, you have to pick and choose when you write a sermon because you go to Leviticus 12 and there's a lot there and you're like, wow, how much of this am I going to bring into the discussion? I'll just say this. It does seem to be a bit of an odd Old Covenant ritual that a woman who'd given birth must be purified over a period of time that generally took, if you had a baby, a male, 40 days. Okay, so you're like going, wow, there's some major purification that needs to take place because I had a baby. So I ask myself here, is God saying something negative about children here? And right, the natural question is, if you need to be purified after having a baby, what's wrong with having a baby? Do not the scriptures teach? Psalm 127.3, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Isn't it a good thing to have a baby? Isn't it good to have a full quiver I think the scriptures speak of children in the most endearing ways. I mean, Jesus speaks about children in the most protective ways. 
he uses them as examples of the way things ought to be. You know, for such like as them is the kingdom of God. So, so I don't think that we should view this ritual as some sort of special indictment against something that you did that was wrong. By the way, some people will say that. You know, they'll be like, hey, you know, the whole idea of what has to happen in order for a woman to get pregnant and have a baby is an ugly affair, and God really wouldn't want that. No, that's not at all what this is saying, and I don't know where people come up with stuff like that. It's such, such nonsense. It's not an indictment, some special indictment. You know what? It is, though, an indictment. Right? There's a purification necessary. Purification. It's a big word in the Bible, and the word purification is somewhat interchangeable with the idea of baptism. When there was an argument between John the Baptist and the Jews about purification, that conversation immediately went to baptism. I mean, this whole thing, you know, earlier I said, you know, there's many baptisms, but there's one baptism, and that one baptism, I think, kind of includes the whole thing this whole event that takes place that purifies us. All this to say that the purification of the mother, similar to the circumcision or baptism of the child, all test, they all testify to humanity's fallen condition and the need for cleansing. Over and over and over and over again, the need to be purified, the need for cleansing. It is during even the most beautiful and significant events in our lives that God would remind us both of our need and his answer. Having a baby, it's kind of a big deal. We have a baby here, it's so, so exciting. And God's going, I want to take this opportunity to remind you of something. There's a problem and there's an answer. No, not, I'm not leaving you unpurified. And so when you go through this purification ritual, the, the, you know, the waters of that purification, they're not actually what's cleansing you. Well, how am I being cleansed? Well, that's what I want you to think about. What is this all pointing to? I mean, the answer should be obvious to all of us. Our purification comes through the blood of Christ. All of Jesus, when Jesus said, the whole Old Testament is about me, and you look at the Old Testament where the priests were mounted to being butchers, right? And that blood is being sprinkled and poured, and, and I mean, purification is taking place, lavers and washings and all this stuff. That maybe more than anything pointed to Christ. He's like, I, I, am, I am going to do all of that. All of that sums itself up in me. So when we read that stuff, we shouldn't ignore it, it should kind of explode in our minds in terms of the major problem that we have. I know a lot of people, when we start reading about the blood of the bulls and the goats and the blood, 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 I know some of you get kind of sick. I think that's an appropriate response. I get it. And it's simplified in the New Covenant, baptism and the Lord's Supper. But sometimes it's good to read it in such a way that it does make you sick, that it becomes visceral, it becomes real. You're like going, wow. God really was making a point in that old covenant system. But it all points to the blood of Christ. First John, we read this portion of this at least pretty regularly in this church. First John 1, 7 through 9, but if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Again, cleansing, purification, baptism, these are all pointing to the same thing, and oftentimes the root word in the Greek is the same word. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to do what? To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It is a recurring theme in the Bible that we need to be cleansed. As I was studying this, I thought it was really interesting. William Hendrickson pointed out a book by a guy named S.E. McMillan. He was a Christian doctor, and he pointed out how long it took the medical community to arrive at the conclusion that doctors should wash their hands before they deal with patients. They were slow in getting there, and were kind of rueful to admit it. He goes, but in the Bible, living waters has been the message from the very beginning. The idea that you can't have stagnant water 
You don't want to reach into like a pond, right? With all the muck, right? It's got to be living water, waters that are moving. And he's like, that message has been in the scriptures from the very beginning, before you had the medical technology to realize that germs were a thing. We also see in this passage special emphasis on the firstborn, the male who opens the womb. That's this idea of the firstborn. And I think, you know, I mean, the, the obvious reference in our mind goes to that great deliverance from Egypt, right? Where the firstborn, again, you know, you had, what did you have in that event? I didn't mention it earlier. And you painted the blood upon the doorposts of what? Of the household. Uh, there, there again, you've got this household where the angel of death passes over the household that's got the blood of the covenant painted over its, its doorposts. That destroying angel would leave that house alone. But it, old, the old covenant has special emphasis on the firstborn. And I don't think when we think, you know, I mean, you know, I, there's somebody in the room here who was a firstborn in our house. And, you know, I mean, as awesome as that firstborn is, and don't look over there for a reaction. I don't think what the Bible is saying is that the firstborn is inherently superior to the rest. Although, she may want to make that argument. That's not really what it's, that's not really, I think, what it's saying. And we know examples in the Bible where the secondborn kind of took over from the firstborn, right? Jacob and Esau and... Isaac and Ishmael and so forth, you know, because it's the child of promise rather than the child of the faith. But if the Old Testament is all about Jesus, then we recognize that the mention of the firstborn has kind of significance in terms of what it's pointing to, and I think that's the way we need to read this, this idea of a firstborn. Colossians 1 13 through 15, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love in whom we have redemption through the blood and forgiveness of sins. And he's talking about Jesus here. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So you see, when we look at the firstborn in the Old Testament, it's kind of a foreshadow. It teaches us about the firstborn who is Christ. Now let me just say, we should not conclude from this language that Jesus is a created being, as the cults do. They're like, there you have. I think the Nicene Creed puts it really well when he says he's begotten, not made. He's the firstborn. He's in terms of begotten, not made. What that means is the idea of firstborn means that you have preeminence. You're the firstborn. You're kind of like in charge in the Old Covenant. Firstborn would be in charge. And that's applied to Christ. Why? Because he's in charge. He is what? The head of the church. And did he use that headship to be served? Did he say, I'm in charge? So it's all about you guys doing what I want? No, he said, you know, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. I mean, we got, we're so topsy-turvy in terms of headship. You know, if you really understood headship, it, because it turns into an ego battle. Who's in charge? Who's in charge? I want to be in charge, in politics especially. Do we have enough representation from this and that and this and that? Who's in charge? You know, they, you know what they used to call them? I think they still do, but it seems like a joke now. Public what? Servants. Boy, it's anything but, right? Verse 24, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Okay, so we have Jesus. He's the preeminent one. But he would empty himself and the very household from which he would emerge was a household of humility. Turtle doves and pigeons, right? We think of uh, you know, that song, right? I don't remember the name of the song. What's it called? Yeah, the 12 days of Christmas. But I have to say, when I hear that song now, I get a different idea in my head because turtle doves and pigeons, those were an offering that you gave if you couldn't afford a lamb. Like, 
give a lamb. If you can't afford a lamb, turtle doves and, and pigeons. I think we need to be ever be reminded that God does not see as man sees. We generally would be, you know, in that culture, you're more impressed with a lamb than with the pigeons. But God doesn't see the way man sees. When the widow offered two mites, it's like one sixty-fourth of a day's wage. I mean, it's like giving a few pennies. What did Jesus say? He's like, she gave more than everybody because she gave out of her poverty, where they give out of the, the abundance. He's not looking the way that, that, that we look at things. The conclusion, friends, of all of this is that God is giving a message. He's giving a message through the drama of these sacraments, these rituals, these ordinances. Call, call them whatever you want. There's all the debate about what we should call them. But it's through these things that Mary and Joseph and Jesus went to participate in what we might look at as expendable, but it is through these things that we learn of God's provision for what we need. It's through these things that we learn of our need, we learn of God's provision. And you know what it's all summed up in? It's all summed up in the blood of Christ. And in a moment, we will engage in what God has determined to be the means by which we would understand that more fully, the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that we would appreciate those things that you have put together to instruct us about you. And even, Father, to instruct us about ourselves. And our greatest need, a need that began the moment we were conceived. You're so gracious, Father, that that message is sent as soon as babies come out of the womb, that we might know, Father, what our problem is and how that problem is solved. And may that ever be the proclamation in your church, your churches everywhere and throughout all ages, you know, that Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost and pay a ransom that we could never pay on our own. And we do pray that as we go to the Lord's table this morning, we would have a heightened and keener sense of these things. In his name we pray. Amen.